Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. Welcome to the Frontline Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and we have another amazing guest for today's episode. Today's guest is the Director of Technical Services of North America and the Global Product Manager of Services for Bosch Automotive Aftermarket. That was quite a mouthful. Uh, his name is Daniel Angelo. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Hello. Thank you. Thank you very much, Justin. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. It's really, really exciting to be here to talking about a little bit our daily challenges in this new crazy world. So yeah, glad to, to be here. I'm so excited that you're here. Our audience hasn't had a chance to, uh, you know, participate in the prep call that we did leading up to today. So I already know some of the things we're going to talk about. And I'm telling you, turn up your volume, uh, get ready for this conversation because Daniel's got a bunch of really interesting things to talk about. He works for, uh, you know, a fascinating organization in a very interesting industry. And there are some things about today's conversation I think are going to just be a little bit different because there's a, a really big evolution going on in the automotive space. Absolutely. That I think is very, very relevant to innovating on the front line. So I want to get to all that. But before we do, I want to ask you the question that we ask every one of our guests, which is what you think is the biggest challenge facing the deskless workforce today? Wow, that's actually a very good philosophical question in the end. Uh, I think it would be hard to name one. So I'll be cheating a little bit. I'll name two. We'll give you a pass for that. Thank you very much, Jesse. I believe uh, one is a social, very strong trend, which is uh, people, they don't want to be as hands-on as people would like to be in the past. So it's really hard to find some hard worker that likes to be out of a desk, hands-on, fixing things, uh, improving things, working things. So socially speaking, uh, uh, I believe we have a biggest change on that. Technologically speaking, I believe every single area is getting more and more complex with uh, internet of things or IoT. So big volume of data, big volume of information, everything is connected and uh, it's really hard to find the good information when you need, how you need. Sometimes uh, you need a concierge. It's not, it's not just a, 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 a coincidence or a chance that Google is huge as they are it's because they found a good way to help us through all this, uh, uh, let's say, endless uh, ocean of information. So I would say, technologically speaking, IoT is one of the biggest trends, a lot of data and information. Socially speaking, I would say finding good people, it's becoming one of the biggest challenges that are, that are having our industry today. Yeah, it's really interesting. You mentioned the hands-on workers and maybe that work seeming a little less appealing to the workforce that's coming out. You know, I have a small sample size, but one of my son's friends actually is headed off into automotive repair. So, you know, my son went out the, the college path, but, but this guy's going to technical school. And, um, you know, when you and I talked about some of the challenges, I see him being very much hands-on. He's looking forward to that work, but he's probably going to struggle a little bit on the technical skill side. But you're saying that just 
you're having a hard time finding the right number of people or the industry is having a hard time finding people that just even want to do that work, period. Absolutely. And uh, it's, it's very funny. For example, in my industry, we have auto repairs. It's super, super common when you have a very successful auto shop that you built over decades, your kids are going to college, becoming lawyers and engineers and doctors, and now have to sell your business because they don't want to do. It's not that fancy, it's not trendy, and this and that. Uh, so yeah, unfortunately, that's a it's a reality. Our workforce is also uh, aging, right? So it's common to have 55, 60 plus uh, uh, mechanics, and then with all the new technologies, start getting you know one of good challenge. So we can uh, uh, let's say trick old dogs new tricks uh but yeah it's 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 a big gap in the new generation they just don't want to fix cars in my case for example yeah it's really fascinating i have some more questions on that but i want to save it and um i I really want to get to share your background with our audience let them know a little bit about who they're hearing from you've got a really interesting past so uh share with us give us a little bit of background about how you came into the role that you're in today Absolutely. First thing to say, probably you already noticed my accent. So I'm from Brazil. I'm living in US since uh, 2016. First in California, now in Michigan. So very different experience in this uh, huge, huge, huge country. So I started my career as a physics professor and end up joining Bosch, uh, uh, repairing test equipment for diesel, you know, big trucks. Uh, so that all of this in Brazil, and that, that was the moment that I start having contact out of my desk, really going to shops, installing equipment, equipment that start being connected to the internet times in locations like Amazon forest or Trinidad and Tobago that we don't even have internet. Uh, so that start facing some of the challenges that our techs they have today when they are out of the office. Uh, then Bosch gave me the opportunity to manage the repair shops in Brazil. So we had 7,000 repair shops. Uh, that was a great, great moment to know how shop owners think, how the technicians think, what are the challenges that they have, all the transformation in the industry. And that was the moment that Bosch said, okay, Daniel, how about going to US, to California to launch a new project that was pretty much uh, digitalizing the technician so you can order uh, oil change through an app. The guy will fix the car anywhere and you don't need, even need to go to a repair shop anymore. I said, absolutely, let's try that. So I had a very nice opportunity to go to California and understand a little bit the repair world there. But our headquarters is in Michigan. So after two years, they, they told me, do you want to exchange California for Michigan? And the guys in California were telling me, don't go there. It's a lot of cold and snow. You're from Brazil. Don't do that. Don't do that. But actually, we are super, super happy in Michigan. Michigan is an amazing place. It is cold, but actually, we love it. We love it. We are having a great time here in the last three years. So that's a little bit my career, personal path uh, inside Bosch. And today, take care of what we call technical service. That could be training people. That could be tech support, a technician over the phone. That could be sending people to support someone on the road. Uh, so yeah, if, if you if you're not a product that we can pack, so you're a service. Then uh, then uh, we are we are supporting the market with that. That is awesome. So Daniel, one of the things you said at the the opening was, you know, technologically speaking, things are getting more complex with IoT. There's a massive amount of data, and everything is connected. Tell me how you see that affecting. The, the deskless workers in the automotive community. These are mostly mechanics. 
that are being affected by this or are there other people in the organization that are equally affected by that as well? You mean, for example, when I, we are talking about the technological evolution of the yeah. people, for example? Yeah. Let me give one example, very simple. And I will use my, my old days of the diesel. Uh, we, Bosch invented the diesel pump in 1928. So almost 100 years ago. For 80 years, 80 years, every time that we have a new car, the only thing that we have to launch is a new test data. So the technician can go to the pump and do exactly very similar procedure in the e-pumps, VE pumps, inline pumps. If you are a technician from diesel, you know what I'm talking about. Then in 95, we just said, okay, now pumps are electronic and electronic create like a whole new world. So even, even we start using a new terminology for that. So our mechanic, that the technician, the classic technician, now he needs to know not only about pressure, but also about voltage, uh, current, electronics, you know, bits and bytes. So we start calling this guy a mechatronic. So that means it's the mechanic and the electronic in just one combination. And that starts bringing out bring a very big revolution on the diesel world. If we look at today, every single car is connected. So we have not only someone that's a mechanic, that's an electronic, but someone that knows about that data science, about computer science. So that's really a new beast that we need to raise in every single repair shop. So you can literally fix a computer on, on, on four wheels. That's what it is a car today. So if you think about, for example, autonomous car, like a Tesla or any uh, 2.0 autonomous uh, uh, system that we have today, we call ADA. So it's the, these um, assistant drivers that, are, that we have is not fully autonomous. We have more code in a car than in an airplane. So can you imagine now that I used to be a mechanic for the last 40 years, just you know, replacing parts, spark plugs, and now you have a computer in your hand that's going to do 9% of the work in a car that's going to drive by itself. So if you do something wrong, you can cause the accident. So that brings a little bit the biggest challenge that we have in, a, in, a, in the industry. If you think about EV, electrical vehicles, what you used to do in a car? You used to change oil. You don't change oil in EV. You used to have, for example, battery exchange. You know, the normal 12 volts battery that I have, you don't have this battery anymore. Now it's a huge package, you know, that you can even die if you're touching wrong. You used to do brake jobs. Now the brakes are regenerative. So when you're braking, actually you're generating energy back. So your whole world is just collapsing, you know? All those new cars, it's a really new machine. So our biggest challenge is how we can take this mechanic and transform him into a mechatronic. So how this mechatronic guy is the guy of, let's say this mechanic 3.0, 4.0, whatever you want to call, right? But how we can get all this volume of information and make accessible inside the shop because this guy is not going to the desk. This guy needs to be in the car. The car still have wheels, suspension, has to go to the road, it's, it's a machine, right? So this is definitely the biggest challenge that every technician is looking forward. Uh, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, a good, it's a good fight to battle, I would say. So how are you handling that? I, I mean, you, you're raising some really good points that there's just, I, I hadn't heard that stat before, but there's more code in a car than an airplane that it, it actually doesn't surprise me, right? There's a lot going on. There's a lot more traffic to deal with in a car. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's, exactly, exactly. it's actually quite a bit less predictable of an environment than the airplanes, right? So I, I can see right. that. 
so how are you trying to solve this? What what are you putting in place now to help bring up this current generation of, of automotive techs and, and bring them into the future? A lot of stuff. One thing, though, it's playing our favor, so I, I cannot complain that. Working in the automotive industry becoming fancy again, right? So if you think about the, the kids, they're going to say, I want to go to Google. I want to go to Apple. I want to go to all those big IT tech companies, right? Now automotive, they are, again, IT, big tech companies. You have this Teslaization of the market. So it's cool again, right? And I have all those new OE companies in Silicon Valley and, uh, you know, and in Europe and in China, and they're global quickly. So that helps to bring new talent. But uh, we have two main, main uh, challenges here. The first one is we cannot forget that we still have a lot of normal cars running and that they are getting more complex so it's not just that every single car now is a Tesla or a Rivian or a Lucid, whatever. We still have Fords, Hondas, Volkswagens getting more and more complex. So I need to make sure that the current technicians, they are going to this new world. That means a lot of training. We can do virtual. COVID help us because now people are getting more digital and doing more you know, on the screen training. That also brings VR and AR to the game. So we can really do a training on the site, not having to send someone. So new technology is also helping in this knowledge transfer. And in the end of the day, even doing remote work. So something that was impossible to do in the past, now it's very common. I can have a technician in Texas fixing a car in New Jersey over the air. So all of those technologies also play a very important role to make sure that uh, the current workforce can be ready for the future. So that's one movement. The other movement is really bringing new talents to the game, right? So we can see with EV, the, the labor is getting more valuable. So of course, it's economy, right? If you pay me a better salary, I'll be more interested in working on that. We also see the work, it's getting, let's say, less greasy and more tech. So now you can see easily a, a technician in a white, uh, 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 let's say, shirt with gloves, computer, and really taking care to not be electrocuted by the car and not to not be, you know, leaking oil or something like that. So that also helps to, to be more attractive to the new generation, right? So those are two big movements. We are close, for example, with university and uh, uh, technical institutes. So we can really bring those guys already ready to this new reality, right? So those are two big movements. But don't get me wrong, the gap is there. We still lacking a lot of technicians. In the US, we have numbers that go over 50,000, uh, the gap of tax. So we also need to get all those guys and make them more efficient, make the process more automatic, make the car not only self-driving, but maybe even self-repairing some of them. Uh, in the end of the day, yeah, we need someone, we need a big brain thinking, and we need to help this brain to be capable to do more that they are doing today. So I would say those are the main areas that we are trying to work. Any one of those topics could be the entire podcast. So I'm going to have to go back. <laughs> I have to go back and just pick, pick through a couple of these. You you talked about VR and AR playing a role in this. I think the automotive industry is is ripe for making those investments because the problems scale very big globally. Talk to me about, can you be a little bit more specific about some of the things you're doing with VR and AR and, and what's working and, and perhaps maybe explore with us some things that aren't working so well? Yeah, absolutely. 
So one, one thing that is really working well, sometimes uh, it's really hard that you can have, let's say a prototype or mocap or a real uh, engine or battery pack, whatever it is that you can easily ship to, I don't know, 50 locations in US, right? It's way easier to ship those glasses. So one module, a training module that we have, we have a case, we have eight glasses, we can ship to a, a, a room of students. Everybody can put the glass and look to an empty table. And now everybody's actually seeing a, a E-Drive or an Excel drive that costs, I don't know, 50,000 euros that will not be capable to ship here and there, but everybody's seeing the same thing. I can have a professor over the air, let's say in Germany, really going virtually and say, okay, let's remove this bolt. This is this component, you know, this is the E-Drive or this is the, the uh, box, uh, the computer box that's going to communicate with the battery pack and on and on and on, the inverter, the converter. So I can have a, a way more easier access. The students, they know how big it is. The students are literally seeing face to face. It's way more cheaper and accessible to, to train people. So that would be, let's say, knowledge, a predictive knowledge, let's put this way, right? So I training the guy before the technician has the problem. Now let's assume there's a car there. There's a car in the shop and for some reason he cannot fix. So he needs to be guided through the process. So we can also use, for example, VR in that case uh, uh, to put the glass again or AR, actually augmented reality. So he can put the glass, he can look to the, to the uh, uh, let's say the, 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 the box or the engine and I can draw in the glass the connections that he needs to do. So now he knows exactly how to connect the cables or the wiring diagram. Usually a wiring diagram, you print in a paper, very greasy, a lot of oil, you go to the shop. Now we can just put the glass and you can see exactly what each wiring is doing. Of course, this is a new technology, it's not available for every single case, but that's how AR and VR could support us to train people or to really to do fix on the job. Uh, we, we have what we do have already in, on the field is using a, a, the phone. So I can just tell the tech, you know, the tech is in the middle of nowhere. He just need a phone. I can connect. I can have a expert sitting somewhere else that's going to look through the phone, see exactly what they are seeing. They can draw together the topics. So actually they're both looking to the phone, not looking to the, to the uh, uh, machine, for example. And then we can draw, we can connect, we can write, we can make the, infor the information accessible. So really supporting on the stop. That's not only automotive. I had the opportunity to be in a, a, a field service convention uh, one month ago, and that really touching every single industry from Epson, from you know printers that now instead of selling, uh, sending someone to install the printers, they're helping the driver that's delivered the printing to install the printer, you know, just with uh, technology over the air. So the technician is becoming a rare resource. So we have to have those tools to make them more, more efficient, let's put it this way. And VR and AR literally can teletransport those technicians uh, across the country or even yeah. across the world. Yeah. I think the remote expert use case is one of the most promising to really bridge the, the physical gap of having the right skill set, you know, the right talent in the right place at the right time without having to actually have that person there. Absolutely. When we talk about these skills gaps, it seems like the most obvious way to really bridge that gap. And what's great is this isn't some future technology, right? You were holding up your phone. I know a lot of people are listening. They may not have seen your phone, but 
you know, you're just holding up a smartphone. That remote expert capability exists right now, today, on Android, on iOS, on tablets, on smartphones. You could do that technology today. And as long as you're prepared for the change management and able to communicate and, and ensure adoption of all that to the folks, then the tech is there to, to support that capability. And I think that's a, a very exciting place that we are today and where we're headed more going into the future. And it's, it's unbelievable to imagine that all of this starting becoming live with Snapchat and Instagram, you know, people putting ears in their pictures yeah. and stuff like that. And this kind of code with machine learning, we, we just transfer that to other applications, right? So yeah, yeah. literally super amazing. So would you say that as maybe early adopters of some of this technology in your industry and within your company, would you say that adoption has been easy or have there been challenges to get folks in the field actually using this stuff? No, it's it's not that easy. Let's put it this way. Okay. Uh, one, one thing that definitely helped, uh, uh, let's say, of course, COVID was something really, really shaped the world, right? But uh, accelerate some topics. So the adoption of those remote technologies with uh, uh, COVID, because now you literally, you cannot leave your home. So now you're doing inspections in the house for, for mortgage using remote technology. So everybody, even the banks that usually they are the last one to adopt a new technology, now they have to accept mortgage over the air, right? So that helped to accelerate but uh, it's not that fast. We do have some, uh, uh, um, let's say, pushbacks. One is the technology itself, the hardware itself. If you think, for example, that Google gave up on Google Glass a few years ago, and now they're considering again. So the timing for those technologies, uh, uh, apparently it's not there yet. Uh, uh, it's becoming more and more now, but if you go five years in the, in the past, they, they were not. So those glasses itself, they are more expensive that it's not easy to a shop, for example, just acquire that for training purposes. So this is one of the challenges that we have, how we can find a good business model where we can make the technology flow. And a second one, it, 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 it's gamification in the end of the day, right? So when you are playing with a glass, creating this uh, virtual reality, it's a gamification and some people just get sick, literally. They're, they start looking around and... They cannot stand there, not use it too. So if you put on YouTube, you can see a lot of very funny scenes that people falling and all that, but it's a serious topic. So this also for VR and AR, uh, I would say push back a little bit this uh, adoption. The last topic, uh, technically speaking, it's not the same that you just create a wiring diagram in a paper. Are you creating a wire diagram in a format that fits to VR, AR? So the investment that you need to create this kind of content, it's also higher. And of course, in a business, uh, uh, you all count the dollars. So that could also be an issue. Those three. But they are being overcome way faster than we predicted before. So we should be seeing more and more of that. Yeah. So I want to go back to a couple of things. So the hardware piece makes sense to me. I think the hardware um, still feels... A little goofy probably to some people just isn't ordinary yet it that's gonna start to go away my son has a vr headset that he uses you know he's 19 he's not a big gamer but he does have a vr headset and he's been watching movies and, and playing games on that thing so i think as people my son's age start getting into the workforce putting a headset on for the purposes of work isn't going to feel that out of the ordinary the 50 and 60 year old guys in the organization today Absolutely. May, may feel a little less comfortable, you know, in, in learning with that approach. But 
I know the tech is coming a long way. You know, there's a lot of speculation that Apple's coming out with some things. Maybe there'll be an enterprise play there. So who knows where it'll go. But what we know, the tech is going to get smaller. It's going to get lighter. It's going to get faster processor. And it's probably going to get a little less expensive. Like, I don't have any magic insights, but I can imagine all those things are going to happen. So those hardware things should start to get a little easier, right? And, and one, one thing that I really like to do in any time that you're trying to predict the future, it's really look to the past. So I can get an, another technology as an example. If you think about the joystick. So the joystick was invented in the 80s for Atari playing Atari. game. Yeah. And now people are flying airplanes with joystick, doing op surgery operation with joystick. So yeah, it took a while. Yeah, it does. But as you said, the new generation coming and they're coming with that embedded on them. So it's the same for VR. I, I also fully agree with you. They'll be smaller, they'll be cheaper, they'll be more natural. And all those applications will also fit better. We are having more and more, let's say, software codes that help people to code uh, for those environments. So yeah, it's coming. Absolutely. What about connectivity? I've heard some challenges. Some some companies I've talked to have tried to explore AR VR solutions, but particularly you mentioned field service before you were at a conference recently. And a lot of field service techs do their jobs away from a place with fantastic connectivity, right? So they, they may not be connected to the LAN, you know, to the Wi-Fi in the building. They may be out on a public network. And in certain cases, you know, it's just not practical for, for VR. Has that been a barrier for you or has the nature of the work that you've been involved with, has that just not been a problem? It does in a, in a few cases, right? So for me, of course, in the repair shop world, we do have most of our operation in the big cities where the cars are, but right. we do have cases, right? We have trucks in the middle of a mining in Chile, in the middle of nowhere. We have ships in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But we do have two things that are coming very fast. So of course, everything has to be in the cloud. And that was one of the components to make the things smaller. So it's just, you know, a very simple monitor connected to the cloud. But uh, if you think how we're doing satellite faster and faster, like Tesla with Starlink, literally they just went a, a couple months ago to Brazil to make sure that the Amazon forest now has 5G, like, come on, Amazon for has 5G. So Crazy. we are also counting exactly in this faster adoption. If you go to a country like China, when you have a super strong government presence and influence, you have 5G in a tunnel, in the middle of a train, a bullet train between Shanghai and Beijing. I had the experience and you see, you see nothing, but you have a perfect 5G. So those, those internet embedded on the structures like a train with satellite, this is becoming faster and faster. So it's still a challenge, it's still very expensive. So yes, you can have fast internet in the middle of the ocean, but you have to pay like $20,000 for that. Right. Uh, but it's coming, right? And uh, probably you'll be capable to do 95% of our activities with VR. And now I have time to send my tech to the middle of the mountains, you know, in, in Colorado to do something where internet's not available. Yeah. That, that could also be an intermediate stage. Yeah. So, so that actually brings up the a next point that you had raised before, which is the the investment level. And, and this is something that uh, it kind of drives me a little bit crazy because we, you know, there's an expression, penny wise, pound foolish, that I always felt like, um, you know, we, we don't want to spend a few bucks now, but we keep sending guys on planes to go fix stuff in remote cities. Yeah. And so I, I, I feel like is the issue that the content creation is just still more expensive than putting guys on planes and just getting them out there? Or is it just that 
we don't have a budget. We don't have a line item for all that content creation for AR, VR content today. So it seems like it's incremental spend, even though we know that there's an opportunity to save a bunch of money down, down the road. That, that is always the chicken egg question. And uh, that was, I can, I can share a case when we start saying about, okay, let's invest in this new software to generate the capability for the phones uh, to have this interaction with our tech support. The first question is, okay, is that going to save costs or is that something that we're going to sell to the customer? So no, we're not going to sell. We expect to save costs. Okay, how are we going to save costs? Okay, we expect to dispatch less specialists to the field. Okay, how much? I don't know. And now you come to the topic that it's a well-developed technology, but you cannot just build a case. So you have to take some risks. That's why usually the ones that are more willing to taste those risks, usually they are the first ones to get the benefit, but sometimes they also have a problem. If you think, for example, tablets, that is also one thing that today is very normal in our industry, you know, iPads and things like that. The first company to develop this in a commercial way was uh, Microsoft. Five years before uh, uh, Apple, but it was really wrong timing, right? So everybody, and it was not that charming. Let's be, let's be honest, it was really not no. that charming. So people look at that and say, yeah, that's too much nerdy stuff. Yeah, that will not fly. So timing is also a big issue. That's why, for example, VR, AR, we are always doing those small pilots and testing because then you can really see, okay, the adoption now it's way better. You know, you go to present, it's not the first time that the person is seeing that in their life. It's actually, oh, my son has this, or oh, I see that in despair. Oh, my, my competitor is using. So in the end of the day, when you have more cases, it's easier to justify to your board. Keep in mind, sometimes your board are the guys with 60, 55 plus. So they yep. never saw that before. Uh, uh, so yeah, it's innovation. It's the, the, uh, there is a very good book that I like. That's uh, I think in English is the innovator's dilemma. Mm -hmm. That's exactly the question. How much should I invest in a new innovation? Uh, to really generate value to the society and not just to be a fancy tech thing that I'm putting a lot of money and not getting anything back, right? So today, specifically VR, answering your question a very specific way, for me, the hardware is still one thing, but also the facility or how easy it is to develop content. It's not easy to find a, let's say, a technical writer that can code and write for VR. So that also adds some complexity to the, to the equation. Yeah. There'll be advances that will come down, you know, on that for, for sure. And, and, you know, I'm sure there are dozens or hundreds of companies that are out there right now looking to make VR content easier, faster, better than it was before. Right. So that eventually we'll find that point of equilibrium where the, the, the cost of content creation um, will be such that it's, it's an easier business case. But you said something else that's really, really important. And we talk about this a lot in the context of innovating on the front lines. And that is you have to take some risks to innovate because we don't have a crystal ball. So we can't predict exactly what's going to happen when we innovate. And this is one of the things that I've, maybe I'm just getting old and grouchy, but I find it frustrating working around organizations that say that they want to be innovative, but at the same time, they are also risk averse by nature. And really, you can't have both. The companies that are most innovative, it's not that they're just living in the wild, wild west all the time, but they have accepted that innovation comes with some yes. amount of risk, that yes. we have to do, take educated 
you know, make educated bets and do it in small bite-sized chunks so that we can go out and experiment in this way. And it sounds like you've been around a lot of opportunities to do that. Yeah. And one, one thing, there's two things that I, I would uh, mention that helps in this risk, right? Uh, one thing is really organization supporting that. So we, we do have uh, in, in Bosch, for example, we have this, uh, we lead Bosch rules. And one of them is, is uh, we accept failures, but we have to learn from them. So that's the main thing. Uh, uh, when you think about those great names that we have, like Thomas Edson, how many times he fails to do the lamp, but he never failed the same thing twice. He always learned a new thing and improve and improve and improve, and he got there. So when you see any big innovator, yes, you're not just having a bright idea in your dream and now it's done. You are failing, 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 but you're failing in a structured way. So you fail fast. So that means it costs not a much. You learn something, you improve, and then you try again. So one thing that we, we say all the time, and that was, for example, why I was invited to go to California, was, okay, we want to do this new uh, initiative. We want to innovate the business model. So it's not this, the services are all you change. It's the same, but the business model is different. People are not going to the shop anymore. They're ordering everything online. They're doing all the experience on online because the best uh, repair shop is your home. So that's the most comfortable one. You don't need to leave your home. But let's test in California first. It's a small scale. Let's not use the Bosch brand. Let's learn. We can fail. If you don't, we learn. We make it corporate. Otherwise, we fail fast. So that's also one recommendation that I, that I can give to anyone looking to innovate. Create this special safety net where you can really fail, right? It's like when you buy a new uh, uh, thing or you try to learn some new thing, like a, you buy an instrument. You're not going to play a song. You're going to fail a lot. And it's okay to have a moment, but you have to balance that with your cost. So create, let's say, an experiment that you can really learn from your failures. Or maybe you're very lucky and you can do in holding one in the first shot, right? So that would be amazing. But usually uh, uh, all the companies, Bosch, we have 20 patents per day. So we are heavily, heavily based on innovation and invention. Our, our motto is invented for life, but uh, we create an environment for that. We create, we create an environment that we can fail fast. And when we fail, we learn and your boss is supporting that, right? Because in the end of the day, everybody has also, okay, if I fail, especially in US, I can tell you being a Brazilian working on a European company, US people are really, really driven by you cannot fail. You cannot fail. You have to succeed, right? And that creates some, uh, let's say, blocks when you're going to try something new because you have all this pressure that you cannot fail. I really like when you think about those big sports guy like Michael Jordan that says, you know, I did a lot of less shots, but I also miss a lot of less shots. So I was the one missing most. Or those guys from hockey that says, you cannot score if you don't try, blah, blah, blah. This is kind of an innovation path. You take the risk. And if you fail, you try again. You learn and you try better and try better to, until you succeed. So yeah, that's what I can tell. I, I love that mindset. I, I think we actually need to reframe and, and maybe use different words. I'm not suggesting that you should change your company. Don't worry, uh, I mean, this is not the first language. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, but no, the, the word failure, I, I think it's different to make mistakes or to have an experiment that didn't go as we expected. That's a good point. Yeah. I don't think that that should be considered a failure. It yeah. should only be considered a failure. And this is built into what you said before. It's, it's only a failure if we didn't learn something from it. Absolutely. But, 
but I think that that is the part, and maybe it's interesting you bring up this, uh, you know, American culture thing. Maybe we are too worried at times. Certain certain organizations are definitely too worried at times Absolutely. to have any mistakes. They don't want the blemish on their record, perhaps. But I think that holds a lot of people and teams and and overall organizations back from maybe doing some of their best work because they look at making, if an experiment doesn't go as planned, it's a failure. And I look at that very differently. I say that this is a learning process. We're going to try a couple of things, but you said something else that's really important. And that is that you, you have to do them in a measured way. You have to take those risks in a measured way so that you're not, you know, betting the entire company fortune on this idea, (laughs) but you know, you're doing things measured. I I think what you talked about with uh, Bosch's example of the oil change business is fantastic that one of the ways you de-risked that solution, that that project for Bosch is by doing it under a different brand. So you could still go experiment. You could go test the idea, see if this was going to work. If it works great, Bosch can take credit for it. If it doesn't, no, then you just kind of put the brand away and you, you move on to the next idea, right? Exactly. I think that's absolutely freaking brilliant. And I think other big companies ought to be doing things like that so that you can be innovative and take the risk protect the brand. I understand the brand's important, but you can't hold yourself back because a lot of big brands that never figured out how to innovate are going away. And there are going to be more that are going to continue to go away. Exactly. If you think in the automotive, that's so clear because every single OE, every single car manufacturer, they knew how to do electric vehicles. Come on, guys. But they never took the risk. They're too shy. And then it was necessary from a crazy guy coming from the IT world to have this crazy idea, I want to do spacecraft and cars to really shake the world to say, wait, we need to jump into that, right? And now everybody's going in this uh, stronger and stronger. Everybody knew how to do, everybody had the money how to do, everybody knew the market where to do, they just didn't have the courage to do, so yeah. Well, there are some other things about, you know, I'm very familiar with Tesla, um, you know, regardless of what everybody thinks about Elon Musk, I won't even open up that debate here, but it, interesting character, very interesting company, and it's an interesting history. I, I think some of the things that are most fascinating to me about Tesla, and, and I'll disclaim, I, we are a Tesla owner in my household. What's, <laughs> what's really interesting is they've completely upended the approach to everything, not just the fact that it's an electric vehicle, that that's actually just one piece of the puzzle. And for people that think that Tesla's successful just because of electric are crazy. They don't understand what's happening there, yeah. but they, they have fundamentally changed how we get our car serviced. And you said this before, the best place to get an oil change, or I would ex- expand that to say the best way to get any service on my vehicle is in my own driveway. And, you know, Tesla's model is based on that. So, you know, my wife, my wife is the primary driver of the car. So she put in a service request on an app on her phone and a Tesla truck shows up on our driveway to fix the damn car. That's pretty freaking amazing, right? (laughs) They even change, if if you go more fundamentally in the industry, they even change the time to build a new car. So everybody was sitting Mm -hmm. the same rules for so many years. You're fully right. EV is just a small component. They, they, we even say this Teslarization process. So if you think about it, you have all those models, right? All different trims that you have in a car. A lot of trims in a Tesla is just a software. Yes. So you buy exactly the same hardware, but if you pay a different package, you have more power, more autonomy, additional convenience, uh, the autonomous driving package. And that was something that everybody was looking and say, wow, why nobody thought about that before? BMW just started doing that, but uh, yes, now we are not the first one, right? So, so you're so fully right, fully right. I know, I know a little bit about the BMW story, and they're getting a lot of bad press because the first thing that they chose to create a subscription around 
was a piece of hardware in the vehicle rather than software. So that's number one. They did the heated seats, I think is the story, right? Yes. <laughs> and, and so the problem is, is that you feel like, hey, the, the heated seats, like there's something tangible about that. There's actually like heating elements underneath my seat that I already had. Why do I have to pay more to have them? And I think that this is just a psychological thing, yes. but software, I can't put my hands on software. So I'm more accustomed as a consumer to paying for a software upgrade because I can't, I can't go see that code. I can't see that button in the application, right? But yeah. I could look under my seat and see that there was already a heating element under there. Why do I have to subscribe to that, right? So, but, but I think this is just, I mean, we've talked about a lot of things here about these are all changing how companies have to work with their customers. And the most innovative co companies, you know, Tesla, I do think is a good example. Love them or hate them. They're fundamentally changing some Absolutely. things. Electric is part of it. Where I get the oil change is part of it. How I upgrade is all done on an app, right? Like my wife could upgrade her car from the app on her phone. It's insane that they've brought this stuff to market now. So there's a lot of innovation there. But yeah, getting back to, yeah. yeah, but getting back to the frontline workers, all of the, the people that support that organization now need to be thinking entirely differently, right? About what that job means. That a Tesla technician that comes to my house to fix something is probably a very different type of technician than somebody that might, you know, be working at the, the local Meineke shop. Absolutely. Even even that, for example, today, Tesla decide they own their own service centers. Even right. that's a different model. Yep. So what they're doing now, it's uh, we don't need dealerships. No, all those fancy glass dealerships. You buy internet, that's also very different, but yep. we do have all those service centers. We help them actually to build those service centers. And as you said, 80 plus percent of the service that they have is a guy with a car visiting you and doing the service. And if you need something, then the guy itself can drive your uh, the Tesla to the service center and provide the service. So yeah. it's, a, it's a very different way to, to think. It's a very different way to act. And the technician itself is a very different one. So if we look in US, we have half million technicians today that are becoming mechatronics every day. Yep. If you ask how much of them has an ASC certification for EV, ASC, they just launched the certification program for EV. And if you're a Tesla technician, you need to have that. So even their techs, they're already in a, in a space that's a very a vanguard space, right? It's a very new, new uh, uh, space for that. So yeah, it's a good challenge to have. Absolutely. It's fascinating. What um, we're kind of running out of time here, but I'm curious to get your sense, Daniel, on what advice you would give to others who work inside an organization who maybe isn't as innovative as the organization that you work for, but they have a personal interest in trying to bring more innovation to the company. What advice would you give them about how to deal with their, their company and their leadership and their culture? One, one thing, it's uh, first, don't be afraid of technology because technology really helps, especially the good techs. I, I have this story. If you look forward, uh, uh, there's a very good saying to say Germans invented the car, but uh, the Americans invented the car industry. So Ford, when he made car affordable to every single one, that was extremely innovative how, how to produce those cars. But he put a, a, a toolbox in every single car, which is an additional cost. And the point was that he thought that everybody would fix their own car. In the end of the day, that's not a reality. The car is so complex, technologically speaking, that we need technicians for that. So technology helps everybody that's in our organization that's dealing with, uh, 
frontline. And if you want to innovate on that, my main recommendation would be first, get help. I mean, in your organization, you're not the only one looking for innovation. Two, especially if you're leading, allow room for failure. Allow room for the new guy that just arrived with a lot of crazy ideas that they can test and learn and bring something new to the company. Because if you're not fostering that in a very specific way, you know, you know exactly how much dollars you're putting in the game, uh, your organization will be afraid to, to, to learn. And let's not use the failure to learn, you know, to make mistakes and, and to learn. And the third thing that I believe it's a very good one, benchmark. Every single industry you can look aside and find a benchmark. So I can tell you the health industry, they start copying the automotive industry for lean manufacturing. And uh, today we are copying a lot of the health industry in car, in a machine human interface, how we can, you know, have a better relationship with the, the, the human being. So benchmark, I believe it's one of the best way to innovate. So I want to have the best experience to uh, go to a shop. We learned that the worst place to benchmark was dentist and the best place to benchmark was beauty saloons. Oh. So we start low. Okay. So that would be the benchmark of the best service and the worst service that people experience. And then we start benchmarking until we, we realize that the beauty saloon, for example, the best experience when they go to your home and they do all the service there. So, okay, maybe you should find a way to service the car in the home. So benchmark for me, it's also good because you can learn a lot from other people's mistakes. Let's put it this way. So that will be my three, let's say, recommendations to to start tomorrow something different in your in your own organization. I love that idea. I I agree with the dentist thing, by the way, too. <laughs> I can't think of any good experiences there, but I haven't spent much time in beauty salons, so uh, I can't I can't vouch for that part. But but all serious uh, seriousness, I very much appreciate the idea of looking out at other industries, perhaps things that seem like there would be no connection at all. Like when, when you talk about trying to learn in the automotive industry from dentist offices and beauty salons, that's fascinating. And that's a, an amazingly good example of how to think outside the box a little bit. And that doesn't even take, like, this is a good example. It's not risky and it's not very costly to look at those other examples. You're just looking at what other people are doing. So it's, it's a great way to do that research to bring those insights back into the organization yeah. and minimize the risk that you're taking as you try to go, you know, take on a new business model. Business and you, model. you can even do some good networking as well. Maybe you can find a supplier or a customer in that experience as well. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of connecting people. Fantastic. Daniel, this has been a fantastic conversation. I've really, really enjoyed it. I knew that it was going to be uh, very interesting and uh, you delivered it exactly as I expected. So thank you very much. Very good. Super glad to hear that, Justin. Super appreciate. I hope everybody that's listening really enjoyed and uh, looking forward to have another interaction. I'm certain that they have enjoyed it. And uh, to the audience, if you have, please share and rate the podcast. Five-star ratings help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. I always realize too, I say five-star ratings all the time. You know, we put this on YouTube as well and there are no stars on YouTube. So oh. on YouTube, you can just give us a thumbs up or subscribe. <laughs> exactly. Um, this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit the website at skyllful.com. And we're always looking for new guests on the show. So Daniel, if you know anybody else that would be a good guest, uh, we'd love to hear about it, make an introduction on LinkedIn, and we'd love to get him on the show. And uh, to our audience, thanks for listening today. 